So while the kids are uh, heading out, I want to remind you, last week uh, in our series, we, uh, we learned that the best way to deal with bad news is to make God great again in our lives. Today, I want to talk about being careful what you ask for. There was a guy who hated living in his apartment complex. No matter how many times and how long and how hard he tried to get out of his lease, the leasing company just would not let him out of the lease early. So one weekend he was away and he was visiting his, visiting his family and he got a phone call and it was from the leasing department. And the voice on the other end of the phone said, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Which do you want first? And the, the man said, well, give me the bad news. And the voice on the other end said, well, there was a fire and your apartment burnt down to the ground. Everything you own has been totally destroyed. There's nothing left. The guy thought for a minute, wow, that's, that's bad news. I could use some good news. What's the good news? And the voice on the other end of the line said, well, you're out of your lease now. <laughs> you know, Judah, in their history, as we've been learning through our study of Jeremiah, wanted out of their lease with God. They wanted out of their covenant with God. And now God was giving them what they asked for, but it wasn't what they expected. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, it is so great to be here this morning and thank you for your words that speak so much life to us. I pray that we draw our attention to them now and let them minister to our hearts as we study this incredible book of Jeremiah and we learn about the life and times that he lived in and, and what was going on in the, the, the history, in, the, in the nation of Israel, the people of God at the time, and how you felt about it. And God, help us to pick up things that are going to help us to understand how you feel even today that can minister to us and that can help us in our life make better choices. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 20. Long ago, you broke off your yoke, your, your, your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you washed yourselves with soap and used an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. How can you say I'm not defiled? I have not run after the Baals. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you've done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves at mating time. They will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. It's a pretty graphic language that Jeremiah uses to describe how God feels about the people 
of Judah. This is not for the faint of heart. This is not for the immature. This is uh, uh, the kind of language that causes us to sit up and pay a, a little extra attention because of how graphic in nature it is. In fact, the whole rest of this prophecy gets is very similar to this. It just sort of keeps going with this very strong and very uh, intense language. And of course, the point is that this is how God is feeling. He's pouring his heart out to the people through his prophet, Jeremiah. If you have grown up in going to church, or maybe your, your impression of church, maybe you didn't grow up, but you have an impression of church. If it is that it's very um, uh, uh, timid and that it's very uh, uh, soft experience, when we get into the study of Jeremiah, we're going to find out it's anything but timid and soft. There are things God tells Jeremiah to do in the book of Jeremiah that will shock you when we get in to the later chapters of the book. There are things that God says to the people of Judah that you would think, can God say that? Is that okay? Should he be speaking like that? And he does. He pulls no punches as we see even in this passage and the descriptive language he uses to describe the condition of the people of Judah in Jeremiah's day. You know, they had been in bad shape, the nation, for a long time. The two previous kings, Manasseh and his son Ammon, combined they reigned for about 60 years, and they were exceedingly evil. 2 Kings 21 tells us that they not only practiced idolatry, but they did so in a manner that exceeded the practices of the pagan nations they had learned it from. They engaged in ritual sex. That's the reference to every high hill and spreading tree. They engaged in divination and even astonishingly child sacrifice. Worse yet, if that's not bad enough, worse yet, those kings introduced these evils and many others to the people of Judah. And they took to it like fish in water. And so God paints this picture using these descriptive terms. And there's three very descriptive terms he uses here to communicate his feeling about where the, the mindset and the current condition of the people of Judah were at. And the first one is prostitution. But he's not even talking about the kind of prostitution you think of of, of, of a person walking on a street soliciting sex. He's talking about a wife who is so immoral and unfaithful to her husband that the only word to describe her would be a prostitute. That's how he felt towards the people of Judah. Another visual that he gives us is of a rotten vine or rotten grapes. 
I have a picture on the screen of some grapes. And if you can see where from where you're at, a bunch of them in the middle are all moldy and covered in fungus and whatever else. It's disgusting. When God established the people of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, his descendants, we call them Israel. When he established them in the land that they were currently living in, he planted them as a good vine, as a good grape. But over the years, they had become rotten. The final description is of a person so filthy that even the best soap, the best detergent, could not get them clean. These are the graphic images that God, through Jeremiah, put into the minds of the people of Judah. And they were descriptive of how he felt about the condition of the nation. It's ironic because this prophecy takes place in, in some of the early years of King Josiah. I'm not going to get into too much history, but King Josiah was the grandson of Manasseh, the son of Ammon, the two previous kings who were so evil. King Josiah might be the greatest king Judah ever had. If you read the story in 2 Kings, he is a hero. He undoes to a greater degree what any other good king before him, all of the evils of the previous kings. And yet, it wasn't enough. For all of the reform of King Josiah, for all of the good that he did, it didn't change the heart of the people. They were steeped in idolatry to a level that not even the pagan nations had gone to. You know, no matter how you slice it, external motivations go only so far. But real change comes from within. My dad had this saying when I was growing up, he used to say that locks, talking about cars, locks kept honest people honest. That's all they do. Because a dishonest person is going to get through that lock no matter what. There was a time in my life where I struggled to exhibit even Basic, even rudimentary Christian behavior, elements of faith. I mean, I, I believed in God, or so I said, but, but there was nothing in my life that you could point to that justified my statement, my words. And it wasn't until I saw myself as unfaithful, rotten, and unclean did I finally desire to be different? Because change, real change, is not external, 
It's something that comes from the inside. I needed prophets like Jeremiah in my life to tell me what I really looked like before God. I know that's taboo. I know that in our culture, it's not. That's, that's judgmental, bro. That's, that's harsh language, bro. But sometimes, we all need that person to tell us the truth. Unedited, raw, straight from the mouth of God to our ears. If you're not in a covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ right now, you are unfaithful, rotten, and unclean. There's no other way to slice it. You may be a good person. I might even like you. People liked me back then, some. But it didn't change who I was before God. Verse 20. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. Sorry, verse 26. As a thief is disgraced when he is caught, so the people of Israel are disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They have turned their backs on me and not their faces. Yet when they are in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you. When you are in trouble, for Judah, for you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. <laughs> this incredible nation of people birthed on the idea that there's one true God in heaven and God over all had become a nation that had so many gods that they worshiped. There were as many as there were towns in their kingdom. Israel's idolatry was not a mistake. It was not a moment of weakness. It was not a one-off stumble. But it was an ongoing, it was an intentional rejection of, God's, of God and an embrace of idolatry. Again, we're not talking about a God in heaven with lightning bolts just waiting for you to make a mistake so he can zap you to death. We're talking about a patient God who for generations pled and worked with his people, tried to lead them, tried to win them over, tried to steer them in a better direction, and they persistently, they stubbornly rejected him and embraced idolatry. And now, when they were getting what they asked for, suddenly they cry out to God and say, rescue us. They were like that thief who only regrets getting caught and punished, but doesn't regret committing the crime. And the only appropriate response that God could have is to refuse to rescue them. You ever hear the phrase, the chickens have come home to roost? 
What does it mean? Anyone, shout it out. You get what you deserve? Something to that effect? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Originally, the phrase referred to offensive words. They, the euphemism for offensive words was chickens. And originally, the phrase meant, hey, if you, if you spread offensive words towards another person, be careful because those words might get turned around and used against you. Well, today, in our, our use of the phrase, we sort of in, incorporate not just words, but all kinds of action, all kinds of behavior. And that's literally what Jeremiah is telling the people of Judah. What God is asking Jeremiah to say to them, the chickens have come home to roost. You've been asking for this for a long time. I've tried to steer you in a different direction, and now here it comes. It's on its way. Now, you might be tempted to think that God is being petty, that he's all passive-aggressive here, and nothing could be further from the truth. For generations, through many other prophets, God repeatedly warned them of the dangers of idolatry, but like that child who is going to constantly want to put their hand in the fire, no matter how many times you tell them no, there's a point in time where you go, fine, put your hand in the fire. That's what Israel was behaving like, and that's exactly what God was allowing to happen. You know, sometimes in life, consequences are the best teachers we have. I don't know what it is about me, but I tend to have to have consequences before I finally figure something out. Every now and then I figure something out and I'm really happy. But more often than not, I have to put my foot in it before I realize it isn't all that good. When I was a kid, I don't know, I was a preteen probably, I got into an argument with my dad and I puffed my chest out and I stood up to him. And he said, you, you think you can stand up to me? And I said, yeah. And he punched me right in the chest. And as I'm trying to get my breath back, knock the wind out of me, I learned a very valuable lesson that day. I was not ready to stand up to my dad. Judah needed a punch in the chest. God was not being petty. He was not being trivial. He was not being passive aggressive. He was giving them what they needed, not just what they deserved, but what they needed. Because they just weren't going to get it any other way. I'm sure if I asked one after the other, could stand up and tell a story about how they had to learn the hard way to do something the right way. Verse 29, Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravenous lion. You of this generation, consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a young woman forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people 
have forgotten me. And the most heartbreaking statement, days without number. God felt incredibly alone in this relationship that he had with Judah. Have you ever been in a relationship that's sort of one way? Where you really don't matter in the relationship. It's only about what they feel and how they feel and what they want to do. And you're trying to have a relationship and you just feel alone. You're all by yourself. God can relate. So rather than learn from their mistakes, accept responsibility for your actions, what did Israel do? What does Judah do that's probably common to all of us? We blame God. That's exactly what they did. They started blaming God. Why do you bring charges against me, says God? They were openly blaming God for the lack of good relationship that they had. So God reminds them of all the things he did for them and they didn't listen. So in verse 31 and 32, he asked two questions five different ways. The first three questions can be summed up. They are, what have I done so wrong? Uh, 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 have I been a desert or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say we are free to roam? We can sum those three questions up into this phrase. What have I done so wrong that you left me? That's the question God's asking him. The second question is in these two questions. Does a young woman forget or a bride forget her wedding ornaments? And that can be summed up as, how could you forget about me so easily and for so long? Two questions God's asking them. What have I done? And how could you forget about me so quickly? That's what he's asking the people of Judah. And you know what the answer is? I thought about this. This is my opinion. I'm not saying thus saith the Lord. I'm just putting it in my words. The answer is this. Forgetfulness starts with faithlessness. Now, when I talk about faithlessness, I'm not talking about belief in God. I already shared when I was younger, in my earlier days, I had a belief in God, but what I lacked was faithfulness to my beliefs. I lacked the behaviors that supported my belief. And as a result, my belief eventually fell into the background and almost was forgotten. To put it another way, they were not faithful to their faith, and so they had forgot about God. What does it look like to be faithful to your faith? Well, to put it simply, it means to do faithful things. Now, in our context, faithful things might look like, but they're not limited to reading your Bible. Is reading your Bible, you do something faithfully. If it's not, you're in danger of forgetting about your God. 
Praying. Is praying something you do regularly? If you're not, you're in danger of forgetting about your God. What about going to church, inviting people to church, confessing your sin, practicing humility, love, kindness, and on and on we could go. Any of those things, any of those things that you don't practice on a regular basis will lead to forgetfulness. You'll be like the bride who forgets her wedding dress on her wedding day. How is that even possible? Well, bad habits produce bad results. That's exactly what happens. We get into bad habits. We don't, we don't feed the faith that God has given us. We don't do faithful things that are in line with our faith. And we eventually forget about our God. These things may seem small. They may seem inconsequential. But they're not. They're vital to a faithful life. It may be hard to believe, but faithlessness grows almost undetected. It's just sort of growing there if you're not doing faithful things. My wife mentioned that we got midweek this week. As the first semester of family group comes to an end, we encourage every member of our church to be a part of a family group to have a, a, a time twice a month in a home with a group of people to connect, to encourage, to strengthen our time, our, our faith, and our relationships with each other. And then in the summer, we, we take a break. The family group leaders need a break. Everybody needs a break. People going out of town, there's vacations. So what do we do? We switch to church midweeks. They're going to be on Thursday nights. I know that's different from Wednesday, but our lease here is Sunday and Thursday. That's the day we have the building. They're going to be on Thursday night. If you're part of the worship team or the music ministry, I understand that that's rehearsal night. Keep going to rehearsal. That's fine. But for the rest of us, it's an opportunity to come together and do faithful things. To strengthen our faith and keep our faith being fed throughout the summer months. When fall comes, we'll switch back into our family groups. And same thing there. We want those groups to be places where your faith is built up. But midweek, family group, these are just... Small things. These are things a couple times a month. What about your frequency at church? Is church becoming optional? Do you, do you sort of come when you feel like it and not when you don't? What about your giving to the Lord? Are you giving faithfully? We put out a, a large challenge at the beginning of the year that we want to be a self-supported church. We have big plans with the money that we have in reserve, but we can't get there if we're not going to be self-supported. We put out a challenge to become self-supported, to create a, a culture of generosity in our church. Our hope was that it would, it would overall increase the giving by about $15 per, per member per week. Have you been faithful to that challenge? What about just your daily relationship with God? Do you feed your daily relationship with God? How much time do you spend on your phone and not 
in your Bible. I mean, we all got big thumbs. We need big fingers. I mean, through the Bible instead of scrolling on our phone. Are you feeding your faith? Are you doing faithful things? I get it. It's California. It's like 80. I can't even get up anymore. It's so hot and I'm uncomfortable. I want to just lay around and be chill and all that. I get it. And it's so easy. You're out of school. You're off schedule. The kids are out of school. You're off schedule. And it's so easy to forget these just fundamental, these simple, these trivial things that matter so much. We don't want to just stop at being a self-supported church. We don't want to just stop at everybody coming to midweek or Sunday. Or We don't want to just stop there. We want to do great things for our God. We want to change our world for Christ. Every one of us has a world of people, an oikos, in our lives. Eight to 15 people. Have you been praying for them on a regular basis? Have you been investing in them? on a regular basis? Have you been inviting them into your life, into your faith on a regular basis? There's maybe 100 people in this room-ish. And if every one of us represents 10 people, 10 unique people to your life, that's what, 1,000 people? There's There's 900 people in this community that are in your life, they're unique to you, that God has given to you to be Jesus to. Are you being Jesus to them? We would like to see, and I know you're with me, I'm speaking to the choir, but we would like to see our worlds change. We would like to see that trickle of people coming out of our oikos and into the church and into a relationship with God, but it's not going to happen if we're not faithful to our faith, if we're not doing faithful things, don't forget to be faithful. Don't be like that bride who forgets her wedding dress. My brother has a funny story. He travels a lot and he went to Chicago. And this was when he first started traveling a lot. We hadn't been to Chicago much. And he went to Chicago. Those of you that are from places like Chicago, This is old hat, but for people that grow up (coughs) here in California, where it gets dangerously cool in the winter, he went to Chicago, and it was in the winter, and it was cold, and the wind was blowing. And, you know, I grew up out here, and I personally, and I'm just going to confess this, don't be angry, but I think trench coats are weird. This is the way, I was like, weird, why do people wear trench coats? It's weird. You look weird, it's weird. No offense, but that's how I grew up. My brother went to Chicago. He got dressed to go to work. He walked out of the hotel, and as he walked, he passed the corner of the hotel to cross the street, and the wind happened to be blowing down that street. And his first thought in his head was, am I wearing pants? He looked at it was so cold that he didn't feel like he had pants on. And he realized why people wear trench coats in Chicago, because you need that, that extra bit of protection down there. Because he gets cold. Let's not be the guy who goes out into the cold without our trench coat. 
You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't go out into the, to the beach without your bathing suit. You wouldn't go to, to the snow without your, your warm gear. Don't go out of your house without your faith and your faithful actions already lined up, ready to go. Don't forget about your faith. Verse 33, how skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes is found the lifeblood of the innocent poor, though you did not catch them breaking in. Yet in spite of all this, you say, I'm innocent. He is not angry with me, but I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will also have... Leave that place with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected those you trust and will not, you will not be helped by them. In addition to forgetfulness, Israel or Judah had gotten into denial. And it's not a river in Egypt. They refused to even believe that God could be angry with them. And in verse 33 and 34, God gives them two more graphic images of how he feels about the condition of the people. He said, one, they had become professional sinners. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. Israel was not amateur at sin. They were pros. And two... They were murderers. That line about the innocent poor, the lifeblood of the innocent poor had been spilled on their clothes. In both of those images, God is letting them know that he is holding them accountable for more than just their action, but also its effect on others. For decades, the people in Judah had not only accept, accepted idolatry and those practices that we've already talked about, but they normalized them. It was the normal behavior in Israel. Can you imagine that? There's a lot of sinful things that have been normalized in our society. And we just, we just live in it. We just, we just swim in it. I'm not saying... We engage in it, praise God. I, I believe we don't. But the world around us is just swimming in the normalization of, of, of sinful acts, of immoral behavior. Abortion is called a right. I think about these things a lot, they bug me. It's why I have to stop watching the news. Because every now and then I feel like that frog who's in lukewarm water and, I, and I, I actually feel it warming up to a boil. You know the story of the frog, if you put it in a boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put it in cold water and just let it warm up slowly, it'll just sit in there until it boils. Well, sometimes I feel like, are we not in a boiling pot here? Like, are, is the water getting warmer around you? Because it feels like it's getting warmer around me. Things have become so normal that, that five years ago, ten years ago, we would be shocked if someone just acted the way they do today or said what they said today. 
I know this is graphic. I know it can be intense. It's God's word, though. It's God's raw feeling. And sometimes we need to hear how God feels. It's one of the greatest things about Jeremiah's prophecy is he so, so attunely felt what God felt that he spoke in this manner. It wasn't popular. We said that before. He was pretty much hated by everybody. And he, he was unsuccessful at changing anybody's mind, if you can believe that. But he did it because he saw things the way God saw them. And he realized that God holds people accountable, not only for their actions, but also their influence. At the end of the day, God says that they were being punished. Not only because they had sinned and they helped other people to sin, but incredibly, they'd even denied that they had any sin to be punished for. That's how far, how out of touch they got. I shared earlier about a time in my life where I wasn't at all practicing my faith. I claimed faith, but I didn't practice it. But what I didn't share about that was the effect I had on other people. And a, and a dear friend in particular, we've been friends for many years, we're still friends to this day, but I was the first person to take him out and to lead him into many different sins. He was a little younger than me, we were good friends, he kind of looked up to me, and I was the role model. That's embarrassing to think about. For me, I found what I was looking for in a relationship with God just a few years later, got out of that way of living, but for my friend, for 20, 25 years, struggled with alcohol abuse, failed marriages. He's been through the ringer. And I was the origin of it. Sin is ugly. And every one of us in this room have sinned and we've helped others to do the same. I love God's word because I love that when even 25 years later, I've repented, I've moved on with my life. He knows I'm a Christian. The good news is he's doing way better. A few years ago, he, he, he found a great woman. They're, they're a part of a church. They're doing well. It's all good, but, but there's so many years where he struggled, and I feel so responsible. So I'm reading God's Word, preparing this study, and it hits me that I never called him up and apologized. So I called him yesterday. I said, I'm, I'm sorry. And my wife said, well, what did he say? And I went, well, he didn't say, oh, no worries, bro. It wasn't your fault. <laughs> he just said, okay, thanks. Because <laughs> he recognized it too. We're good friends. Sorry for the emotion, but I, I really want you to get in touch with the passage. 
like I did. It's life-changing. I know it's not a popular message. I know we're not talking about the love of God and all the grace and forgiveness and how God overlooks all our faults because he doesn't always. And I would be doing you a disservice if I kept telling you everything was great. We're just going to float on clouds all the way to heaven. That's not how it works. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of rights that have to be wrongs that have to be righted. And that only happens when you let God's word change who you are. When you listen to the message, when you let it sink in. Who might you call tomorrow? God holds us accountable for not only our actions, but our influence on others. We're going to close out chapter 3, verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside, you sit waiting for lovers. Sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld. No spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend, from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. It's, it's not a pleasant message. So as Jeremiah is bringing his his sort of opening message to a close. He's, he's now a prophet. He's been anointed by God, and this was his first message. What a great opening Sunday right there. He references this, this obscure law from Deuteronomy about marriage. And the law says that if a man divorces his wife, and she goes on to marry another man, and then they divorce, she's not allowed to come back and marry the first man. Now, I'm not going to get into that whole conversation because it's not the point that Jeremiah is making. He's making a point, though. He's using that law to make a point. And that law sounds strange because it's so different from how we view marriage and divorce and remarriage and all that. But it's, it's different to us because in our country, the number of marriages or divorces you may have had or not had has nothing to do with your citizenship. But in ancient Israel, it did. You see, there was a covenant between God and the people. And the covenant stipulated that if they follow the covenant and they adhere to the covenant, not that they can't make a mistake, not that the covenant, you know, God isn't gracious and understanding, but if they willingly defy the covenant and ongoingly refuse to honor it, that he was going to remove them from the land. We talk about immigration. Imagine if you got deported for being divorced. It was kind of a joke. didn't come out well, but I meant it as a joke. I mean, it's just unusual. It'd be weird. We would not think like that. But in Israel, that's how it was. God said, if you don't honor the covenant, I'm taking you out of the land. And that time was now coming. And there was nothing they could do to stop it. And the point 
that he was trying to say, the message he was communicating was, look, just like the law forbade a wife to remarry her first husband if she had gotten married after him, Israel was not allowed to remarry God after they had not just one husband, but many lovers. More than the towns in the, in the, in the, in the country. That's how God felt about his people who he loved. He wasn't taking them back. I don't know how you feel when you hear that. It's not pleasant. It kind of runs counter to how we want to think about God, that he's just always gracious. He's always forgiving. He's always going to just welcome us back. Mm, not so much. There's a point. There's a point that if you keep asking out, he's going to let you out. And if he lets you out, it's really, really hard to come back in. In their case, they weren't. So here's the point. God doesn't treat his covenant, his relationship with you lightly. So be careful what you ask for. If you claim to be a believer, but you live like an unbeliever, there is a point where God will give you what you want. So make sure your faith comes from the inside. Learn from your mistakes. Do faithful things. Be a good influence. And above all, be faithful to your God. We're going to stand. We're going to close out in a time of prayer. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of repentance. A time of renewal of our faith. A time of recommitting ourselves to the covenant that God made with us that's so life-giving and that we've made with him. Father, we are so grateful that you are incredibly loving, incredibly patient,